on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking questions that people have concerning their study of Scripture, maybe some issues as it relates to their home, family, job, or ministry, where they're looking for biblical counsel. And if we can help, all you need to do is call us again locally, 525 525- Uh, 1859 or toll free for our internet listeners. It's 877. The call letters WAGP 980. 877 WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, great to be back here and great to take some questions today. It is indeed, Pastor, and a number have come in, so let's get right to it. Toby from Seabrook, uh, South Carolina, wants to know uh, what are the um, roles of a deacon in the church? Well, uh, it's a good question. The word deacon simply means a servant. And the word is uh, used sometimes in a technical or sometimes in a non-technical way in the New Testament. For instance, Jesus said, he that would be great among you, uh, let him be the servant or the deacon of all. That's obviously a non-technical usage, but that's helpful to us because Uh, When we look at that word, it reminds us concerning the role of a deacon. In essence, a deacon is a servant. And of course, in many languages of the world, uh, they have just one word. Uh, In English, we try to distinguish uh, the Greek word diakonos by translating it servant, if it's a non-technical use, or as deacon, if it's referring to the office. Uh, The office of deacon is a unique New Testament office, whereas the office of elder, well, you found that in the Old Testament, but the office of deacon was new to the church age. And uh, most people would agree, myself included, that the first deacons are found in Acts chapter 6, because obviously they started somewhere, and it appears from Acts chapter 6 that these were the first deacons. Uh, There was a controversy that had arisen in the church where some people's uh, needs were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Uh, There were Hellenistic Jews as well as native Hebrews. The Hellenistic Jews were those who had come uh, into Israel for uh, the celebration of one of the requirement Old Testament feasts that culminated with Pentecost. And of course, this Pentecost had been different from those that were celebrated for a few thousand years before this, because on this Pentecost, uh, the fulfillment of what was pictured in the Old Testament actually took place where God, the Holy Spirit came in power. And of course, the church was born. No one wanted to leave. And so people stayed around Jerusalem to learn about the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And they heard the apostolic preaching. Thousands were converted. And, of course, with time, uh, there were great physical needs that the church had. And so some Jews who didn't live 
in uh, Jerusalem proper, uh, their needs were being overlooked. And so the spirit of God uh, directed the apostles and uh, they said, look, it's not good. It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It's not we're above this, but we have other priorities. And if we're going to do what God has called us to do well, namely that we would devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, then we need to let someone else meet some of these physical needs. And so they asked the um, congregation to uh, find seven men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. And they did. And they brought them before the apostles. The apostles, no doubt, approved their selection. And so they laid hands on them and they prayed over them. These are really the first deacons. Later on in the epistles, of course, Paul gives some of the qualifications for a deacon in first uh, Timothy chapter three. Uh, and he describes specifically wh- where they need to be in terms of character to serve in this office. Again, a very technical use of the term deacon. So there is no specific job description uh, for a deacon in the Bible, except to say that they are servants and they serve at the will of the, of the elders who rule. So for instance, at community Bible church, there's a multiplicity of responsibilities they have, Uh, Some uh, give oversight to special events that we have, uh, and they serve in that capacity. Uh, Some are involved uh, on a regular basis in terms of administering the elements at the Lord's table, um, picking up the uh, morning offering and overseeing that. And uh, all the deacons in in Community Bible Church, uh, when a new member joins, they're given a a family that they track for the first 12 months. They, they're continually responsible for that family, but they want to make sure in the first year that that family uh, is encouraged and being taken care of. And uh, so again, there's no written job description except to say a deacon is a servant and a deacon serves at the will of the elders of whatever uh, local church he may find himself in. Unfortunately, in a lot of churches, deacons don't carry on the role of deacon and they take more of the role of an elder. And then uh, their real job description is diminished. So there are two offices, elders and deacons, and both are vital to the health of a local church. All right, Rick, I think uh, someone has already called and they've been holding. So let's go to them. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Hey, good morning. Um, my question concerns during the tribulation time. I've been reading this and, and studying on this, and um, from what I'm from what I'm discerning, the the armies or the areas, the regions that are going to come against Israel at that time, I'm, I'm thinking that it's Egypt, um, part of the Ukraine, Turkey, Iran, and Russia, and I'm just wondering if I'm correct in this and and reading this further. Um, it seems like that the armies of Russia, based on that area, are going to be defeated by God and their army buried in Israel. Am, am I reading this correctly? Well, as you read Ezekiel's prophecy, and he describes these armies of the world that are amassed, certainly no one would deba- debate the role that Russia will play. Some would debate whether Ukraine is involved in that. Nonetheless, there are armies from the north, as there is a great army from the east, that attack Israel. And ultimately, of course, the Bible is very clear that all the peoples, all the nations of the world will go against Israel in the final war. So, yes, uh, there is going to be a a great slaughter that is going to take place uh, during the latter part of the Great Tribulation. 
Uh, God describes these vultures that will feed on all the dead. Um, he describes, uh, you know, the, the cleanup period at the end of Daniel that takes place before the millennial uh, kingdom is actually instituted. So, yes, there's a great war that is incomparable to any world war the world has ever seen. And it will, in the truest sense, be a world war in that what we've called in the past world wars uh, can involve maybe, you know, 10 or 12 nations. Uh, This is going to involve all of the nations of the world. But certainly there are some that are specifically highlighted. So that's a great question and um, appreciate you calling and asking it. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859 is the phone number. And uh, if you have a question, feel free to call. You can go on the air live or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate. Indeed. Grace from Savannah writes, during, um, or rather, is there a college campus that bans alcohol and or consumption of alcohol by students? Uh, Liberty University would be one that comes to mind. So, yes, there are some Christian schools that do that. And so at Liberty, uh, neither the staff, faculty, or student body is given freedom to use alcohol. So um, most, uh, unfortunately, Christian schools today have pulled back on that requirement, um, and it's very unfortunate but uh, traditionally, that would be true across the boards, but no longer. There's just a handful that still see that as an important biblical standard. Tempest from Hardyville writes, My sister is a Jehovah's Witness and lost a son several weeks ago. She believes she'll see her son again in the resurrection. She also believes the dead are conscious of nothing and references Lazarus. After being dead for four days, there is no Bible account of him talking about heaven or a hell. How do I answer her? Good question. Um, you can, um, uh, there's a number of passages that uh, you can deal with concerning this question. Uh, the, the issue with Lazarus in, in John chapter 11 is an interesting passage, and this is a favorite along with one taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, that if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your door, they'll usually uh, use either John 11 or they'll use the text in the book of Ecclesiastes. And unfortunately, remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so people can quote a verse out of context, either out of the immediate context or sometimes out of the broader context of a book of the Bible. So in John 11, of course, um, the, the Lord came uh, to Bethany where Lazarus had died four days earlier. And uh, he said after he, he, they, they came to him and they said, um, you know, that he was dead. And, and Jesus said, well, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I might awaken him from sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, uh, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. And so then Jesus said to them plainly, verse 14 of um, Luke 11 says, Lazarus is dead. And so the term sleep is used sometimes metaphorically in the Bible, not to describe the state of the soul, but to describe the state uh, of the body. Uh, Paul says, we shall not all sleep, meaning we're not all going to die. Uh, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, It says in that same passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Christ will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? He will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep. Because while the body is dead, 
the immaterial portion of man, the soul, the spirit is absent from the body and is present with the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter five to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the scripture is very clear that as Paul writes, for instance, to the church at Philippi, he says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Uh, he said, I don't know what would be better to stay on in this, you know, physical body and minister to you Philippians, or he says to depart and to be with Christ. So when you die, if you're a Christian, you depart and you are with Christ. And so when Jehovah's witness, uh, take, uh, John 11 with Lazarus who had died and, and they say, well, you see his, uh, body and soul and spirit were all sleeping in the grave. They really do an injustice because, uh, the Lord is speaking of physical death. And of course, a little bit later, um, on in the text, um, Mary and Martha, of course, have the count encounter with him and, uh, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then uh, were who were with her in the house in consoling her. When they saw Mary rise up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet and saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, you, you could have healed him, Lord. And, uh, of course, uh, he had already had the encounter with Martha and, um, Jesus had already promised her, your brother shall rise again. And she said, well, yeah, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But then Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus was giving her some very clear insight. Yes, I know you recognize the physical resurrection of the body, but there's something even greater than that. There's a sense in which even though a person dies, he'll never die. Uh, he, he will continue to live. Why? Because the immaterial portion of, the main, of, of a person goes home to be with the Lord and they wait the, the resurrection that is still in the future. Um, to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, his body was going to be laid in a grave, but the person inside that body who had just been saved by the grace of God and his faith in the Lord, uh, was going to be with Jesus. And Jesus himself will say there, one of the closing statements, father into your hands, I commit your, my spirit. Jesus recognized that he would continue on. And Stephen, by the way, prays a very similar prayer. If you remember in Acts chapter seven, when they are stoning him to death in Acts seven fifty nine, though his body ends up laying dead there outside of the Damascus gate in Jerusalem, uh, the person inside the body goes home to be with the Lord. So he says, Lord, into your hands, I commit your my spirit. Um, not to mention later on in past John 11, when you come to uh, Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable between Lazarus and the rich man. Now, some would say it's not a parable. They would say, well, if it is a parable, it's the only parable where someone is specifically named. Uh, and some would say for that, <laughs> for that reason, it is not a parable. In either case, whether it's a parable or not, Jesus never uses an untruth to teach truth. And so clearly the rich man dies, he's conscious, he's in a place of torment, 
Lazarus dies, he's conscious, and he's in a place of delight, Abraham's bosom. Uh, another um, Hebraism for Old Testament paradise, which, of course, was emptied out at the resurrection and the ascension. So uh, the scripture is very, very clear uh, that to the worst a man can do, as Jesus will say in Luke 12, is kill your body, but he can't kill your soul. The soul continues on endless forever with the Lord, and someday God raises up the body. So it's important you let scripture interpret scripture the other text that Jehovah's Witness like to use is uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. For the living uh, know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor, uh, nor have they any longer a reward for their memories forgotten. Well, again, in the context of Ecclesiastes 9, he, he's talking about the righteous versus the unrighteous, the clean versus the clean. Uh, the swear versus the person who doesn't swear and and so forth. And um, he's describing that when someone is alive, people have memory of him. But when they they die, he is soon forgotten. He, and, and again, that's he's he's citing here kind of a general principle as he describes life and he describes the vanity of life apart from God. But to take this text of Scripture and to say, well, it means that they're no longer conscious, that, that would contradict what he says a, a, a short time later in, um, let's say, here it is in Ecclesiastes 12. He, uh, he's describing, again, those who have died, and then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God. So, again, he, he describes this whole principle that while the body may turn to dust and rot in the ground someday, awaiting the resurrection— uh, the spirit is home with the Lord. So Jehovah's Witnesses are just wrong all the way across as it relates to both believers and unbelievers and many other issues. But I appreciate that question, and uh, let's go to the next one. All right. I believe we've got a live caller standing by. We uh, call them back periodically, and I'm just waiting to see if the uh, light is going to go blink here in one second. In the meantime, if you have a question, you can always call us at 843-525-1859, toll-free, 877 877- Nine two four seven nine eight zero, or email us at tbl at wagp dot net. And indeed, they are ready. Let's go ahead and take them now. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Line two, Rick. Yeah, how you, how y'all doing? Oh, there we go. All right. Thank you for calling today. How can we help? Good. But well, I hope that we can help each other. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. Iron also a minister. Yeah, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Great verse. Yeah. So what's on your mind, brother? Oh, lost him. So sorry. Um, don't uh, know what happened to him, sure. but must have lo- it must have been a drop call on his cell phone. Let's go to the next dictated question, Rick. All right. Uh, let's see. Edith from Wyndham, Maine, writes, um, My pastor is strictly King James. I'm discouraged because I do not... Uh, uh, I am not, and my granddaughter does not have a clue as to what he is saying, so she doesn't come anymore. I own a new American standard, uh, but feel wrong, like I'm sneaking behind his back. Please tell me what version you use. Are other versions so wrong? I'm 67. I've read King James all my life, but the word meanings have changed. But my pastor is not young, uh, doesn't have young people coming. Well, I understand your your frustration. Let me first answer what translation do I use? Uh, typically, I, I teach on a Sunday morning out of the New American Standard Version, the NASV. 
Uh, I personally, I think it's one of the most precise, one of the most accurate translations of the Bible. There are different uh, philosophies of translation, what we call dynamic equivalent and fluid equivalents. Uh, One focuses on uh, readability and literalness second. The other focuses on literalness and readability second. So it's a matter of what you put priority on. Um, a, a translation that is more literal, by literal I mean it takes the original languages and as best you can take them from the original and put them in the receptor language, they do a word-for-word translation. Where, say the NIV, you have a little more, not just always word-for-word, but thought-for-thought. And so when you're translating from the original into the overall thoughts rather than the actual words, you lose some of the fine nuance. Uh, There are other literal translations. Most consider the New American Standard to be the most literal in our day. Uh, The King James would certainly fall into that category. The challenge is, is that it's using, you know, 17th and 18th century English. Of course, um, the 1611 version is no longer being read anywhere for the most part in the United States. Most people could not read and understand the middle Chaucerian English of the 1611 version. When people say, well, I'm using the 1611, they're really not. They're using the 1769, which was the fifth revision of the King James with tens of thousands of changes that had been made because the English language was changing so very fast. And so a good translation asks, well, what word today best represents this original word. There are some people who, you know, maybe because they haven't really studied the issue carefully, think that, you know, the only right translation is the King James Version of the Bible. And uh, Edith from here from Wyndham, Maine, who's emailed us this morning, one thing that might be helpful to you would be to go online and listen to uh, the course that I taught on bibliology. And that's all online. And it's going to be be aired beginning uh, tomorrow on Thursdays uh, for the next many weeks. And But Section 6 of that course deals with an evaluation of English translations. We have something very unique in the English tongue is that we have many translations to choose from. There is actually over 200 English translations. There's about 9 or 10 that are very popular that most people use, but there's over 200 English translations. In most countries of the world, you go, there's one, maybe two. Uh, And this debate is not even a debate. Uh, They just have to go with what is available. But, of course, God in his providence, you know, since English is the international language of our day, you might expect to see more um, different translations in the English tongue. Certainly, there are some translations that aren't always faithful to the Word of God. We could say, for instance, the Feminist Bible uh, that, you know, alters the Word of God to make it fit their need. Well, they've changed it. So we can definitively say that's a bad translation because it really doesn't represent what God has said. And certainly, uh, there are some, like I say, that are more precise than others. I think there's a bigger issue here concerning your granddaughter and that is she may not know Christ as her Savior. If she just says, well, I'm not coming because the pastor uses a translation I can't understand, that would be kind of a red flag to me. So I would sit down and I would ask her the diagnostic questions, maybe go online since you listen to search the scriptures up there in Maine and say, you know, honey, I, I want you to sit down here with your grandmother 
and I want you to watch this DVD presentation with me. Would you like to have God as your friend? And if I had your granddaughter across the table, that's what I would share with her. And there's some questions at the front end of that DVD presentation that she can, um, you know, stop and answer. And it would be good to stop the video at that point and get her to write down her answers and then to put those answers into the mirror of the Bible. And my guess is more than likely you're going to find that there's another issue that's bigger than the King James issue. Uh, But certainly, you know... um, your pastor may be locked in on this and he's not going to move past this. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate because our goal as pastors is to communicate and to make the word of God clear. And if you're using a language uh, form that is dated with a lot of archaic words, um, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Norman Geisler, gave us a list of about 100 words in the 1769 translation of the King James that today mean virtually the exact opposite. Um, Because words sometimes change with time. Uh, If you're reading out of Philippians 4, uh, it says, be careful about nothing. Well, listen, when you cross the street there in Wyndham, Maine, look both ways, be very careful. Well, what do you mean be careful for nothing? Well, today we would say be anxious about nothing, be worried about nothing. But the words worried and anxious didn't exist in 1611. And so that's the way they rendered the Greek. And that was a good translation for that day. And if someone were to read even the preface of the 1611 King James Bible, which is not in most editions of the King James, but you can find it online, the translators will tell you that they were uncertain about some of the words they translated into English because they were still um, finding, you know, more word studies that illuminated the meaning of the word saying Koine Greek or ancient Hebrew. In fact, even before the 1611 edition was finished, there was an edition two of the 1611 because they had discovered more information that would help further refine the translation. And so the intro- in the introduction to the 1611 King James Bible, they note that they uh, they say in it that there will be better translations that will follow, that will refine some of the words that we use, that will better reflect uh, the original translation of the Bible. And there was a humility there that, you know, you can't help but appreciate that many times in our day is ignored. So um, that's the counsel I give you, and I appreciate you asking it, and I, and I uh, will pray for your granddaughter today before the day is out, Edith. Uh, let's go to our next caller who's waiting patiently. All right, and I think we've got our caller back that uh, had started to ask a question. Good morning. You're back on the line. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for calling. Sorry your call dropped out there. Well, what's your question today? How can we help? My question was this. I said I was going to ask you a question and then I would give you a chance to respond to it, and then I also want to respond to it. Go ahead. Did any, any way in the Scripture have you ever read that Jesus Christ himself, the Savior, carried a weapon, such as a gun or a knife, anything? No. There's, no. there's no text anywhere in the Bible that says that Jesus ever carried a weapon. Now, what's your uh, follow-up? My, my question, again to you, then I'll be a follow-up. Do you personally have a gun in your home? Yes, I do. And so nobody would want to break into my home because uh, if they break in and I feel like my life is threatened, I will shoot them and I won't blink. Um, 
So I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, if you want to understand my reasoning theologically, then you might want to listen to my message on Romans chapter 13, and it's online at searchthescriptures.org. And uh, I deal in that message with what God's word teaches about when it is right and when it is wrong to take a life. Go ahead. Now, what's your follow-up? My follow-up is this. I, I totally disagree with that. Um, I understand. So, so why don't you do this? Um, go online and you listen to the message. And after you've listened to the message, it's an hour long. And again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Sometimes people say, well, the Bible says do not kill. Well, it doesn't actually say that. It says do not murder. Uh, Now, the old King James says, and this gets back to the prior question, do not kill. And that's because they only had one word in English at that day. In context, would determine whether you meant kill in terms of taking an innocent life or kill in terms of taking a non-innocent life. And so uh, today we distinguish that with two different words. It's, it's kind of like, um, and there are many cases all the way through the King James, where, again, it's an issue of language and what it means. It's, it's like going all the way back to the first question of our day, and it was concerning the role of a deacon. And I mentioned, <laughs> excuse me, I mentioned that there was a technical and non-technical use of the word deacon. Uh, he that would be great among you must be the diaconus of all, the deacon. And in many languages of the word world, they just have, that they use that word, deacon, like in all the Slavic languages of the world. And so your mind has to ask, well, is he talking about a literal deacon who serves in the office, or is he just talking about a servant in general? Well, context is clear. And words find their meaning in context. If I use the word trunk, Do I mean what's behind the car that you drive? Do I mean what's at the base of the tree? Do I mean what's out in front of an elephant? Do I mean what's at the base of a sailor's bed? Uh, It it all depends on the context. And so, for instance, um, in the King James, it says it came about after these things that God tempted Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He tempted Abraham. Well, in Hebrew, there is one word. Uh, for tempt and test. And so context determines it. And in the old English at this time, there was one word for tempt or test and context determined it. And so um, God obviously tempts no one with evil. And so today the word tempt carries the definition of a solicitation to evil. And God doesn't solicit anyone to evil, whereas the word test uh, deals with not, you know, soliciting someone to evil, but building them up and their character through the trial that God is going to bring them through. So I would say to you, go back, listen to the sermon. And after you, you've listened to that hour long sermon, if you have a question, you can call back and I'll do my best to answer it. Let's go to the next question. They're stacking up here, Rick. Indeed. Christy writes, I am currently attending a ladies Bible study. Uh, that our pastor's wife is teaching. It is on the battle of the mind, not the one from Joyce Myers, but just a study from the Bible. A question was brought up at the last study concerning daily forgiveness and keeping short accounts with God, and the answer she gave, I'm just not sure about based on certain scriptures I've read, along with others who were in the uh, study. Anyway, she basically said that a believer does not ever have to ask God for forgiveness for their sin based on what took place at the cross. At the cross, we were justified, redeemed, saved from our sin. 
She said that if you went and murdered someone today, we would still go to heaven because we are saved. She said all the scriptures on forgiveness were for non-believers. I believe that, yes, Christians can and do sin, and that because we are saved, I think for most, Christians try to live a good life. I agree that we are forgiven at the cross, therefore I have eternal security. However, when there is sin involved, I feel it is only right to ask the Lord to forgive on me of my trespass as we forgive them that trespass against us. Is she right that we are free from asking God to forgive us when we've sinned? I don't feel it uh, is, but maybe I missed something or am in the same mindset as a lot of other people. Well, I don't want to comment on the specifics of your pastor's wife because uh, I don't have her here in front of me to be able to say, well, that's not exactly what I said. And this is what I really said. And I, and I find this all the time that people actually hear one thing when the speaker is communicating something different. Or sometimes uh, they have touched on a topic and they're not in the time frame they're given uh, the opportunity to embrace the holistic view of it. Uh, the scripture is very clear that when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. And there are many passages that, that teach that. For instance, when Paul writes the church at Coloss, um, this is what we would call one of the prison epistles. And of course, uh, in the prison epistles, Paul will use imagery from, you know, first century imprisonments, whether it was a literal Roman jail or someone under house arrest. And, and he would describe like in Ephesians six, a soldier's armor, and he makes a spiritual application. Well, one of the things that they had in the first century was a certificate of debt and a certificate of debt was an instrument. It was a piece of paper, uh, that was, um, tacked to the outside door of a, say, a Roman debtor's cell, and on it would be the crime that the prisoner had committed and what the Roman government had dictated as necessary for that crime to be paid. So Paul, for instance, in Colossians 1 says, um, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he states that plainly in the uh, first chapter. In the second chapter, uh, Paul makes this statement. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, uh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. And then he gives a visual illustration that would be uh, known to someone living in the first century, having canceled out their certificate of debt. That's that uh, piece of paper, as it were, that piece of papyri. And we've actually found some of these. And some of these are on display in some museums, the biblical museum there in uh, Israel, where you will see some of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, also the Rockefeller Museum as well, where you will actually see a literal first century piece of papyri that was a certificate of debt that would have been placed outside of the cell. And by the way, when they, um, when you had paid your crime with the Roman government, they would actually give you this certificate of debt and they would write the word on it to tell us to tell us die which is, by the way, the same word that Jesus shouted from the cross in John 19 and verse 30, where it says, it is finished. And there's one in the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem 
that literally has the word tetelestai on it, and then they would imprint the Roman seal on it. What that meant is if you were ever rearrested in the Roman Empire for the same crime, all you had to do was produce your certificate of debt with the Roman seal, indicating that it had been paid in full. So he uses this common imagery in the first century, and he says that God has forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's a beautiful picture. God has taken your certificate of debt, all the violations that you had had in thought, word, and deed against the holy God that would condemn you before him. And he removed it and he nailed it to the cross where Jesus could shout to Telestai, it was paid in full. So when you come by grace through faith and you trust the finished work of Christ, that he didn't die for some of your sin or most of it, but all of it, and you receive eternal life, you're eternally forgiven. You enter into union with God. But then there are verses in the New Testament that deal not with our union, but with our communion with our intimacy with the Lord, like First John chapter 1, where he's dealing with the subject not of union, but communion, not with our relationship with God, but our fellowship with God. Our relationship with God starts the moment we receive Christ as our Savior. That's eternal. It's unbroken. It can never change. Whereas our fellowship with God, while that also starts the moment we're saved, that's a moment-by-moment thing. That's an ongoing thing. Our relationship with God cannot be broken. The Bible affirms when we are saved, we are saved forever. However, our intimacy with God can be broken. So, for instance, Psalm 66 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. That's not a verse written to unbelievers, that's a verse written to save people. Not if I sin, but if I hold on to, if I cling, if I regard iniquity in my heart. We all stumble in many ways, but when we cherish that sin, hold on to it and refuse to repent of it, we have chosen to break that fellowship with the Lord. And that's what John talks about. Um, He says, what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son. And he says, I'm writing these things to you so that your joy can be made complete. And so this is a message, he says, that we've heard from him and we're announcing to you that God is light. That means he's pure, he's holy, he's without sin. The word light is used in different ways metaphorically in the Bible, sometimes to refer to the holiness of God. Sometimes it's used to refer to the insight, uh, the light, so to speak, the illumination that God gives concerning his truth. Here it's being used of God's holy character. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we're walking in the darkness, we're lying. We're not practicing the truth. So I can say I'm in fellowship with the Lord, but I'm really not if uh, there's sin in my life that has been, you know, not dealt with. And so he says in verse 7 of this first chapter, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, that that's the life decision to walk in obedience, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son cleanses us from sin. And then he says, um, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. So Christians do sin. And God calls the believer to confess, not to get saved again, not to receive eternal forgiveness, but to receive what we might call family forgiveness. When I come to God as an unbeliever, I'm a condemned child under the wrath of God. I am by nature a child of wrath, Ephesians 2. And God is not my father, he's my judge. But now that I am saved, when I come to him, he's not my judge, he's my father. I'm not a condemned sinner. I'm a justified child of God, one that God has termed a saint on the basis of Christ's finished work. And so I'm coming not to get saved again, but to experience cleansing, to reestablish that intimacy with the Lord. And so once a person is saved, he is still called to confess his sins to the Lord in order to experience cleansing. Now, unfortunately, 1 John 1, 9 has often been used by evangelists as an evangelism verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It has nothing to do with evangelism or how to get saved. In fact, that would be total, a total misrepresentation of the gospel. If you're saved by confessing your sins, Jesus could just say, you know, my father is really forgiving. And if you just truly confess your sins, and the word confess is two Greek words, homo, homo. We get our word homo sapien, homosexual means the same, legao to say. So when we confess, we're literally saying the same thing. We're calling sin what God calls it, that it's evil, that it's wrong. And I don't rationalize it. So inherent in genuine confession in the New Testament is an attitude of repentance, to walk in the light as he is in the light. And so when we confess, he's faithful and just. And if all we have to do to get saved is confess our sins, then Jesus never would have had to have died on the cross. He could have said, just confess your sin. And if you really mean it, then my father will forgive you and you'll go to heaven. Just make sure you're all fessed up when you die. Well, um, that is not a salvation verse. And we're not saved by confessing our sin. We're saved by the gospel, by the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Now, we acknowledge we're sinners, that we're rebels. Um, We have to change our mind about sin. That's called repentance. Um, But you're not saved by confessing your sins. You're not saved even by acknowledging that you're a sinner. You're not saved by even getting upset over the fact that you have sinned. There are people who confess they're sinners, but um, don't get saved. Pharaoh said, you know, I've sinned. But did he repent? No, not at all. So you can confess your sin without genuinely repenting of your sin. You can be sorry for your sin without being uh, saved. You know, Esau wept over sin, but he never came to genuine faith. Uh, He was of the evil one, the New Testament says. So, you know, it's possible to, um, to acknowledge sin without ever coming to genuine faith in Christ. But once we are saved... To maintain that intimacy, we are called to confess our sins. So again, I'm just giving you the general principles. If you really want to study this in detail, we have a series online called Back to Basics. And one of the lessons in the Back to Basics series is called Maintaining Fellowship with God. And again, it's not dealing with our relationship, but with our fellowship and how to maintain it moment by moment by moment. Anyway, um... 
So, you know, you, there's a number of different, uh, you know, issues that we can raise here. But very clearly, you have people who are sorry but not repentant. Like I said with Pharaoh, like I said with Cain, like I said with Esau, who's, uh, you know, godless. He's of, um, he's a Babylon man, the New Testament says. I won't elaborate on that. It, it's just um, you, you can acknowledge without genuinely repenting. Okay, let's go to the next question. All right, our next caller would like you to address where it says in Genesis uh, that— um, Abel was the uh, seed of, or rather that Cain was the seed of the serpent, uh, and Abel was the seed of Adam. It doesn't. So um, what you're dealing with is a false doctrine that uh, has come out of different groups over the course of largely the last 50 years, where they've tried to, you know, make this distinction between um, the seed of Abel and the seed of Cain. Uh, certainly there is a difference between Abel's descendants and Cain's descendants, but Cain is never referred to as the seed of the serpent. Uh, that, that picture is never given uh, in reference to him. Now, it is true that he is a rebel and he is of the evil one, as First John says. Uh, but in it, it's unfortunate that when you read of his lineage, uh, they're rebels. And when you read of Abel's lineage, uh, that comes down through, um, you know, you can read of it in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, it comes all the way down to Noah. It's a, it's a whole different set of people. But the seed of serpent, the, 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 the Cain is the seed of the serpent. That I, I won't get into it. I could get off for it for the next hour. Um, that's a false doctrine. It's not found in the Word of God. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. 525-1859 if you have a question. And our next caller... Um, let me go back a little bit here. I've got a number of questions that have piled up. Uh, Let's take some of the dictated email that are here in front of me, and we'll hit one of those. Okay. A listener would like to know, why does Mark 16, 16 say that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved? I have heard you say many times that baptism is just a symbol. This verse seems to indicate that you have to be baptized to be saved. I know it's not true, but I was hoping for an explanation concerning this verse. Well, most verses will explain themselves if we'll read the entire context. And by the way, this is one of five places in the New Testament where the great commission of our Lord and Savior is given. Uh, In the uh, Galilean account where he meets 500 people in Matthew 28, uh, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, make converts of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them. So the order is conversion. They become a disciple. Uh, They're baptized, which is the outward symbol that they are a disciple of Christ, a follower of his, and then they're taught and instructed. And so you find that pattern all the way through the New Testament. Uh, and, And really, baptism was the first century confession of faith. How did someone know you were a Christian? Well, let me ask you this. How does someone know you're married? Well, at least in this culture, most of the time, they just have to look down at your finger. And if you have a wedding band on the finger, they say, well, oh, yeah, he's, he's married. Uh, the wedding band is not what marries you. It's symbolic of what God has done. Uh, the wedding band does not marry you. God marries you. What God has joined or married, let no one separate, Jesus said. Well, what the wedding band is to marriage, baptism is to salvation. It's a symbol. It's an outward symbol. And very often, again, when you just keep reading, it will explain itself. So in Mark 16, Jesus said, go into all the world 
and preach the gospel to all creation. He who is believed and has been baptized shall be saved. And that phrase is explained further by the phrase that follows, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, if Jesus had said this, then there would be some real confusion and real contradiction in the Bible. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved and not been baptized, which is not in there, shall be condemned. No, the text simply says he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Uh, You could paraphrase this in terms of the meaning of baptism in this way. He who has believed and shall openly confess me before men via baptism. That guy has the genuine item. He's going to be saved. He is saved. But the person who is disbelieved shall be lost. So your, your salvation is based on your belief or your condemnation is based on your disbelief, not on your lack of baptism. And so this is consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty two: If someone will not confess me before men, I'll not confess him before my father who is in heaven. The confession does not save you. Christ does. The death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel, the power of God to save you. The confession is what is an indication of what has happened in the heart. The, the mouth speaks that which is in the heart. And so if someone is genuinely saved, Jesus taught that they will be unashamed of that salvation. And in the New Testament, error, though it's much under, misunderstood in our day, that confession of faith took place at your baptism. When you were immersed, which was literally what the word means, I know it's kind of a religious word in our day, but there are many secular usages in Koine Greek of the word baptism. For instance, if I were um, a fuller of clothing and among other things, dyed clothing, I might take a piece of white cloth and if I wanted to turn it red, I would baptize it into red dye. I would immerse it. And so that's one usage of the word. It means to immerse. And it's a picture when one is brought under the water and up again, they're confessing that my faith is in the Lord Jesus who died, who was buried in a grave, is seen as being brought under the water and was raised for my justification is seen as being brought up out of the water. So baptism pictures death, burial, and resurrection. Now, there is a word for sprinkling in the New Testament, ratizo, never used in reference to this ordinance, because sprinkling can never picture death, burial, and resurrection, only immersion. So this is not just some Baptist doctrine. This is a biblical doctrine, and that's why 9 out of 10 born-again Christians worldwide practice post-conversion baptism, not by pouring, not by sprinkling, but by immersion, because that's the simple reading of Scripture. So there are people, of course, who want to make baptism part of the plan of salvation. But again, this verse in and of itself cancels out that idea. He who has believed and has confessed me, because if your belief is real, you'll confess me how, by baptism. Uh, That's how it was done. And I would say today that if someone really, truly understands biblical baptism and they refuse to do it, then they have good reason to doubt whether or not they have genuinely put their faith in Christ. Look, I'll do whatever Jesus wants me to do. Now, sometimes people delay that baptism because of misunderstanding. 
they think, well, I don't have to do it because I was baptized as an infant. Not really. You were ratizod. You weren't baptizod. You were sprinkled. You were not immersed as an infant. Or sometimes they have a misunderstanding as the the meaning of baptism. They'll say, well, pastor, I'm not ready to get baptized yet because I'm, you know, I just want to grow some more and be a consistent Christian and, and then I'll get baptized. That tells me they don't understand baptism because baptism isn't about them. It's about the Lord Jesus. It's not talking about how strong or consistent you are. It's talking about how great he is. You're giving honor to him. And that's why in the New Testament, they didn't withhold baptism. You were usually baptized the same day you were saved. We don't do that as much in our day because it is so misunderstood. And we have to teach people to uh, obey Christ with believers baptism. But anyone who makes baptism a requirement to salvation has abused the scripture because we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if you believe the gospel, you're saved by it. And he defines it as the death, burial, and resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he separates baptism from the gospel. So I think this is clear. But if you want to study this in more detail, I have a handout on baptism. And I go through about 10 different passages that people use to teach baptism saves. And included in that handout is Mark 16, 16. And that might be useful to you. All right, let's go to the next question. Okay. And a little housekeeping note, we don't usually do follow-up questions because of the amount of calls that we get. But if that listener that called in earlier would like, we can even send them a copy of Romans 13, and then he can go ahead yeah, and respond. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yep. All right. Our next caller uh, says that he thought the Bible had illustrations where it was okay to drink alcohol in my moderation. What do you say? Well, um, I would say to you, you need to come to Community Bible Church during the month of January, because we're in Romans 14, as I've been preaching through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we are coming up on the issue of alcohol. We'll just barely touch on it this week, but if you will stick with me in January, you'll hear the teaching of what I think the Bible reflects in this area. Clearly, all Christians would say it's a sin to get drunk. Nobody's going to debate that. Clearly, um, it is a wrong, wrong to get drunk. The question is, is it wrong to have a, a drink? Can I have a beer with my pizza? Can I have a glass of wine at night? Well, um, you need to come and really find out this issue. The majority position 50 years ago is virtually all evangelical Bible teachers and preachers taught total abstinence. Now that's becoming the minority view and all these young pastors who are coming up, the, you know, the, 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 they'll say, come on, let's go to, let's go to the bar and we'll have a beer together. Some, some churches even actually bring beer into the service now. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Uh, some of the things that are transpiring in our, in our country. And so, no, I think a Christian should abstain for two reasons. One, God not only condemns drunkenness, he condemns the use of strong drink. And so then the question becomes, what is strong drink and how does that apply in the culture in which I live? You can't, in the truest sense, say the Bible teaches total abstinence in that God allowed the use of alcohol to purify water. Uh, It was used um, as a medication. Um, Timothy was probably on a Nazarite vow and Paul said, take a little wine for your frequent illnesses. No doubt to understand that phraseology in the first century culture, add some wine to your water because it will kill the bacteria and you won't get sick so much. You could use wine on a sore uh, as a medication to kill bacteria. And so in the 
parable of the Good Samaritan. He poured wine on his cuts that killed the bacteria and then put oil over it. That was like a Band-Aid. So you can't say definitively the Bible teaches total abstinence, but um, come and let's reason these things together and uh, listen if you have a good church home. If you've got a question on this over the next few weeks, the messages will be put online and you can uh, hear them and think them through for yourself. You're an intelligent person. See and search the scriptures to see what they really say. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day. Mm -hmm. 